Hey everyone, welcome to the Weekend Sober. This is Kim and Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back, everyone, to the Weekend Sober podcast. Um, we have a very, very special guest today. Um, we are speaking with the Ellen Elizabeth from It's Ellen Elizabeth, and she is a sober mom of twins and an author, a self-proclaimed, and I hail this as well, a, an infertility warrior, which is amazing. I love that. Um, and really has been a true help for women breaking the shame spiral of any type of woe you might have, whether it be infertility perhaps or um, sobriety and other things. So we can't wait to um, hear about how you inspire and your journey. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I appreciate it so much. And like you said, I'm Ellen Elizabeth. um, And I have many journeys, um, as you said, with sobriety, addiction, and infertility. So they're all pretty much merged together, but um, we can just start with the beginning. Um, I didn't have any trauma or anything in my childhood. It was very good, very positive and loving. And really my addictions started with my first love. So as I grew up, I never really felt like I fit in. I had feelings of inadequacy and I was very much a people pleaser and wanted everyone just to be happy with me. So I often changed who I was for others. Um, and I just grew to have feelings of unworthiness, even though I had such a supportive family and everything, it was just deep inside me um, that I felt that way. And this first love of mine was my everything. And again, I manipulated myself to be who he wanted me to be. Um, And he, much to my surprise, was a drug addict. Um, I didn't realize it when we met, we met at church. Um, So, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. I was 18 or well, I was 17 when we met like a few months shy of 18. Um, So I was a senior in high school and to that I'd only partied, drank or smoked pot less than 10 times. I really wasn't a huge partier in high school. Um, I was very much the straight A perfect looking student um, and did all the honor societies and things that you do at that time Mm -hmm. and when we met I just immediately fell in love with him and he was my first everything so it was a very strong bond and he introduced me to crystal meth the night before my senior prom and that is obviously a huge jump from only drinking a few times and partying a little bit so because I felt that for love, you do anything and everything. Um, And with my past of changing who I was for others and being a people pleaser, I decided to jump right in and try that with him. So I believe that he struggled with drugs for years. I never really got his full backstory. And 
now that I know who he is, I don't believe anything he told me throughout our relationship. Um, but he obviously had done meth before. And so just it became our pastime, what we did together. And it didn't, so I did end up going to college. I went to very good universities. I transferred a few times um, because of my addiction. You know, sometimes you change locations and think things are going to change, but um, it made things worse. And our relationship within a year was really just me dependent on him because he was kind of my dealer. He got the drugs. He you know, we only did it together and, um, the same it was, age, or was he, he was, he was two years older. So when I met, he was 19. And, um, so I looked up to him and there was a brief moment when I believe I was 18 and we'd been doing it pretty hard for several months where I was like in my brain, I'm pretty sure you're depending on this are you a drug addict? And, you know, I just shoved that off, put it under the rug, never tried to think about it again, because it was so scary. Like, I didn't ever want to label myself or accept the fact that I was struggling. And we continued our relationship for three and a half years. Um, it also led to me moving with him to Cincinnati. So I got into Xavier University with a scholarship. It looked like things were going to go well. And then he wasn't able to find a meth dealer, but he did find cocaine and crack. So we just kind of switched addictions to another drug and um, crack made me completely, un I was unable to function. So me being the straight A perfect student for so long, I was now failing courses. I wasn't able to go to class. I was literally about to be kicked out for failing. Um, and did my parents, your, yeah, I was going to say, did your family yeah. know what was going so, on? Since they were in Colorado Springs, they didn't see a day. They didn't see me daily. And of course, every time I called them, I said, everything was perfect. Uh, they knew I was struggling in school. They didn't know what I, they knew at this point, the relationship was bad. Um, they knew I was struggling with anxiety and depression, which is what I blamed everything on. Um, at this point, I was 106 pounds and very clearly unhealthy. Um, and I just blamed it on anxiety, on being on a college budget and not being able to eat regularly. Um, and really, it's just because I was doing the drugs. But my mom did come to visit for my 21st birthday. And she saw the apartment I was living in and was just like, this isn't like you, you know, I'm very clean and it was a mess. There were clothes everywhere, um, dishes everywhere. And she saw me and how I looked and just knew there was something going on. But they kept asking me if I was okay and what was happening. And, you know, when you're in your addiction, you just lie and lie um, as much as possible to get out of it. So I continued lying and um, several months so I did end up withdrawing from school because I would rather withdraw than be kicked out. Um, then I was trying to look for jobs and just couldn't find anything. I wouldn't show up to the interviews because I'd be like, yes, I got an interview. I'm going to party and celebrate. And then I just couldn't show up. So um, I just went downhill fast. And 
my parents had always said they would financially help with rent if I was in school. And now that I was no longer in school, I just couldn't pay for it. Everything was going to drugs. I used my whole life savings on drugs and I was overdrafting every time, you know, I'm just now in tons of debt. And so it was getting really bad. And I called my mom one morning and said, I think I need to come home. Will you come get me? So I finally reached my breaking point. But then, of course, the next morning, I called her back and said, just kidding. Everything's fine and perfect. I was just having a bad day. And she was like, no, we are already on our way to pick you up. So at that point, they finally were like, this has been enough. And we're not going to allow this anymore. Uh, so they picked me up and I finally was able to break up with the boyfriend and that's when I just replaced drugs with alcohol. So I felt that I hadn't had a college life and I was like, I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to be the fun party girl, kind of like the drunk sorority girl. Um, I just wanted that lifestyle and it just progressed over the years to full-blown alcoholism. Um, I obviously believe I've always been an addict or an alcoholic or, you know, it's a disease that affects me in every way. And the alcoholism took over so that um, I had to hide alcohol because I needed so much more than people. I would bring shooters in my purse no matter where I was or a little water bottle filled with vodka so that it looked like water. And um, the amount I was drinking was astronomically higher than my friends. And I started, um, did I was in a few. It well, did you, did, if you ask them, did they have any idea? I'm no. curious about that. Okay. Nobody knew. Um, even at the very end of my drinking, people had no idea because I put on this facade and pretended everything was perfect all the time oh, so it it is exhausting and just the the pain of going to liquors like switching a liquor store I'll do this one on Tuesday this one on Wednesday so that they don't notice that I'm getting that like the people who work there I didn't want them to judge me even though they you know it's not that hard to tell but just the hiding and the things we do to go around accepting that we're truly struggling um, is, is exhausting. And mentally, it's, it's like you're causing yourself more anxiety and stress, which you then drink over because you think that's going to help. And it's this circle. Um, so I was, I was in a couple other relationships that didn't work out. And then I met my now husband about 12 years ago. And we were, we weren't drinking buddies, but it was, you know, we were 25, 26. So we still went out and drank, um, not to the extent that I was at the beginning of my drinking, but I still was hiding shooters. And uh, we eventually moved in together. So I had to start hiding things in closets and, in swim bags and gym bags, anything that I didn't think he would be rummaging through. And um, I would buy 100 proof Smirnoff Ooh. and yeah, just chug straight from water bottles um, with 100 proof. And that's on top of what people see me drinking. So pretty much on a nightly basis, I would be seen drinking, you know, 
four drinks, we'll say. And along with that, I was just chugging vodka from the closet. Oh so God. there were several negative incidences where, so I'm an angry drunk and I learned that pretty quickly. There were really bad things that happened with my husband and I tried to fight bartenders or bouncers or just random people. <laughs> I was very angry all the time. It's and then I were fighting with yourself and that's how it was coming out. Cause you knew I'm taking it out on other people. Yeah. You knew yes. you were such, you had the stability growing up. You knew this wasn't who you were, but you couldn't get out of it. Exactly. And I, again, it's just a vicious cycle. Cause I was like, well, I'll drink to forget about it. And I just remember looking, so it would always be after I drank from the closet, I would go to the mirror and say, you're either going to have to quit drinking or this is going to be your life forever. And I was just so depressed with either option. Um, and I didn't, didn't even know what to do. And I was seeing therapists and, you know, they were like, you need to quit drinking. And I was like, F off. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, people were telling me. I think that is so unbelievably common because at the end I was doing the same thing. And um, you put it as you were getting, you were making it worse and worse and worse to get to the point to quit. Yes. You know what it I mean? It was almost like, like I was new. It was almost like I was subconsciously trying to push myself further and further closer to the edge, you know? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, I would do the same thing. Like I would bring vodka to my closet and hide it from my husband. I was drinking vodka straight from the bottle in our, in our bar area. I would replace it with water. So my husband didn't know. And then he'd go to make a cocktail on Saturday night and he'd be like something weird with this. Vodka. <laughs> this is not yeah. good. Um, and I remember, I remember one, a couple times like doing that alone in the in the dining room like drinking the vodka and then looking at myself in the mirror and being like you're a fucking idiot and yeah. like staring at myself in the mirror and being like you're a fucking moron what the fuck are you doing mm -hmm. but then like waiting for the buzz to like kick in so, so I wouldn't would have to think, think about, about it. it anymore oh. exactly yeah. now and did he help you get sober or was he yes this is gotta he stop? he well there were a few times so moving on to the infertility portion, um, we got married and wanted to start having a family right away. And so the doctors say, try for a year. And then if nothing happens, you can start seeing infertility doctors. How, um, how old were you at that point? Let's see, I was 30 to 31. Okay, um, so that technically you're not advanced maternal age yet you are geriatric when you're 35 right 35 that's right yeah and I, they call it geriatric oh which I know I, I find they'll say call it AMA and I'm like I know what you're advanced saying advanced maternal age yeah, yeah. yeah you're you're saying, saying, I'm like just right my eggs and tell me you know I hear you <laughs> yeah. um I only ask because I find if you are infertile or you have in, not infertile but you have fertility issues at a younger age they're less likely to jump on it until you're at that 35 time age. So they definitely put us through yeah. months of things that I don't think we needed to keep doing. Um, and at the time that we'd, we'd been trying for a year and then started 
doing the fertility treatments, I was drinking so much. And I feel like it escalated even more because I was so yeah. depressed that it wasn't working. But then in my brain, I was like, this is all your fault. I was blaming myself for it. And my husband knew I was drinking. There were several times where he said, let's stop together just for this next cycle yeah. and see how it goes. And I'd be like, okay. But in my brain, I was like, I'm still going to have like, four shooters a night just to get me to the comfortable stage where I don't go through withdrawals, where I don't sweat all night long and hallucinate and do all those things. And so by then, you know, four shooters didn't, it, it just made me somewhat stable. It didn't make me act drunk. It didn't, you know, give me the effects that I wanted. I was always pissed off that that's all I could have. Um, but I knew that that was kind of what I needed just to stay, um, feeling good. And we started doing, um, it's called Clomid, which helps you ovulate. And then we did that for like eight months. And oh. I know I'm just, I'm like, why didn't they move it up a little yeah. to the next stage? But yeah. at the same time, now that I'm looking back, it was a miracle because, you know, something was telling me you're not ready to get pregnant. Right. Like yeah, this I knew your life before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it was really just agony going through it. And I wasn't able to quit drinking and several more bad incidences happened where I drove 30 minutes in a complete blackout Mm -hmm. on the phone with my husband and just completely went silent because I passed out. Luckily I'd parked already, but he thought I'd gotten in a car accident. Um, Just absolutely terrified driving around town looking for me. And apparently I had told him somewhat of where I was because he was able to find me with, and the car was running and my door was open and I was just completely black, passed out. And I know, so things like that were happening and there's just all these signs that, Mm -hmm. yes, Ellen, there are, you know, powers greater than yourself that you do need to believe are there. And um, even after that blackout incident, I, all I could think about the next day was drinking. And I was essentially kind of on lockdown that day because my husband was like, you're not going anywhere. Um, This is really scary. And that's kind of when that was in November. And then I went to rehab in January. So there were still two months of drinking and trying to stop and being pissed about it and, you know, back and forth. And in in treatment? Or was this... were you like this in, was right before treatment okay um, when you went like to treatment in, in, in was treatment it in program yeah I mean oh like, I understand yeah sorry I thought you said in treat like no I, yeah, it was um 21 days in treatment and then I did another six weeks of outpatient okay and it was um a great experience it was hard for me to accept that I needed to go to rehab because again I looked all put together And there's the stereotype of what alcoholics and what addicts are. And I was scared that people would think of me in a different light. And when I got into rehab, I was just like, wow, these people are just like me. And I don't care where they come from or what they've done, but I want to be friends with them. And 
I'm like it shit. I was so judgmental before getting sober and it's totally flipped it so that I don't, I'm not like that anymore. And, um, so that was five years and a few months ago that I started my recovery journey and I was able to stay sober for several months just to make sure my, my body was feeling detoxed and better. And like I was in a good place because we did still want to try to have babies. Um, and so after I think eight or nine months, we uh, tried doing the next step after Clomid and we had four failed cycles after that. And I was able to handle that obviously without drinking, which was a huge thing. Um, I was really hoping, I was still blaming myself, even though I don't believe it. it I mean, my drinking may have affected it a little bit, but I don't think that's the only root cause for my infertility. I think there's a lot of other things that caused it. But we did eventually do IVF. Um, the last thing you can really try unless you do a surrogate um, or use other people's eggs, but um, it worked on the first time. And yeah, it was very exciting. We, it was uh, a last minute decision to put two embryos in. So we did end up with twins and they're now three. So we've, um, I've been able to mother sober and the pregnancy was literally the worst thing I've ever felt. And I was, honestly, that was the worst time and I had the most cravings <laughs> during that time because I just felt so disgusting and so sick and was so overwhelmed. And so that was really interesting to go through because I was, I was thinking, you know, this is what you've gotten sober for and now you want to drink, like what the hell? Um, but obviously I, I didn't do any of that. So it was a healthy pregnancy, although I just despised it because twins, for most people make you a little sicker. Um, obviously you're a lot bigger. Um, I'm a pretty tall, skinny person. So it was like 50 pounds just of stomach. And um, it was just amazing to get through it. And now of course that I'm not pregnant, I'm like, oh, I kind of miss being pregnant. <laughs> that was not as terrible as I thought. Um, but we had the, had the kids and, um, Immediately, our son was diagnosed with a birth defect and he needed emergency surgery the first day of life. Um, he had several CPR 911 scares after that. So the first eight months was incredibly stressful. And again, I was able to do that all sober. I was still going, um, when I first got sober, I was doing meetings every single day. And then with the kids, the schedule obviously changed. So I wasn't going to as many, but I was still doing meetings. Um, and so AA has been a part of my recovery. And um, it was really scary, but all the things that my son went through, um, but it was just refreshing to know that I was sober through it. Um, if I hadn't gotten sober, number one, my kids would have probably had fetal alcohol syndrome. Number two, if I'd had to go through all of the hospitalizations and scary is issues, 
I would have just been chugging vodka from the hospital room. <laughs> like, I just can't even imagine how any of that would have gone if I was still drinking. Is there um, any like addiction in your family? Did it? So, so my mom was adopted. So we're not quite sure what was on her side. Um, my dad, I believe his great grandfather struggled with it. Um, it wasn't talked about. The only reason I know is because my grandpa and I were incredibly close and he was kind of my confidant and um, he actually helped pay for some of my rehab. And he mentioned um, a few times that his dad would drink and get really angry. So that's kind of what led me to that conclusion. So yeah. I do believe it's in our, in our family for sure. Yeah. And um, we, growing up, my parents were, they drink normally, but um, they drank every night for a cocktail yeah. before dinner. So I thought it was normal to drink every day, but obviously I took it to the next level and was like, I'm going to drink at five and go all the way till whenever. Like to me, it was drinking all day or every day, all night, whereas they would have one cocktail and be done. And of course, when I was, no, sorry, go no, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say when I was at the worst part of my addiction, I was like, it's my brother's fault and it's my parents' fault and it's my husband's fault and they're all the ones with the problem and basically never admitting to myself that, you know, I was the one with the issue. It's hard. It's hard to look at yourself in the mirror like we were just saying when Kim was saying it without then dampening it down. Yeah. But that's been the, I thought that the most eye-opening is being able to look at yourself with all of your flaws and you were talking about judgment and how judgy you would be with other people, what it yeah. would look like or anything like that. But it's that internal judgment that then still like is there. And then that eventually has to go away. You have to make that go away. Mm -hmm. Right. It's so hard to accept yourself in anything that you do. Yes. Do you find that now? We're, we're running out of time on our Zoom, but I just wanted to, yeah. I'm curious, do you, how is your self-judgment now? How do you deal with that? So I find it creeping up often. Um, I'm very hard on myself. I still have feelings of unworthiness and inadequacy, but now I know how to work through it. So I... I don't only do AA, but I do lots of recovery groups and I don't think AA is the only way. Um, and so I try everything pretty much and a lot of it I really enjoy, but there's so many tools and tips you can learn in either the AA program or just being surrounded by other like-minded people. So I'm in a few, I really prefer like meeting with women, um, who have gone through the same thing. Cause I just think we can talk differently than if you were with a guy or a man. Um, but I have lots of women groups and women meetings and groups of women that I meet with, but honestly, so I, I still struggle and I'm still definitely judgmental of myself and I'm able to recognize it now. So I'm, when I feel it happening or when I notice it, I kind of say to myself, okay, that just happened. How can you flip that and 
what can you do to make yourself feel better? So, you know, I have sticky notes everywhere, like you are worthy and love yourself. What we always say to each other, like be kind to yourself. So show self-compassion. It's that compassion. Yeah. Each other. Yes. I'll be like, you need to be more compassionate to yourself, you know? Yeah. And yes. And I think what you were just saying about that judgment of others. And, and then that was a large part of it before both of us got sober. We were so quick to judge ourselves, quick to judge other people. Um, you know, and I think that has shifted our mindset has shifted so much yeah. in that we um, just have a different perspective on everybody and where right. everybody stands and you what everybody to, has right. been through, you know, right. and what you were exactly. saying about kind of like the, the stigma of rehab and, and in general, people that are sober, you know, right. we addiction. never yeah. addiction. We never, I never believed that I would stop drinking. You know, I never exactly. thought that I would be sitting here doing this, talking about this, having yeah. these conversations. And that's, what's so important. I think that we are, you know, yeah, to find that we go through things and you said it earlier to be able to get to this place, like everything kind of culminates. Like you knew, like during Clomid, that wasn't the time you weren't, right. you know, there was a greater, you, you were being protected. There's some through all of these, I, I think of all the times I could have been, I was in precarious situations. It's frightening. Exactly. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, it, you know, we are here for better things. And we're making those changes for ourselves. And that's why we're here to encourage other people. I think it's great what, yes. where you come from, how honest you are with everything, how it may look for up to other people and knowing that this is your truth and you're standing strong. is just a beautiful thing. And you're a writer as well. Um, yes. Which is an awesome tool to deal with those feelings of self-doubt and yeah. the emotions that we would drink to avoid mm -hmm. right through it right like you exactly. work with your journaling and your writing and you're writing a memoir right? I am so I've got it ready to go I'm just hoping to find a publisher so that's my next step and um if if I don't find a traditional publisher I'm going to self-publish so that's I'm just I'm doing I'm self-publishing mine nice that's awesome. I'm so excited for it. I just can't wait for it. Like when I think of it actually being out on the shelves, like I get teary eyed and I just hope it, it at least saves one person's life. Yeah. That's incredible. Right. Thank you. It was so wonderful to meet yeah, you. It was really great. You too. I loved this talk. Yeah, I really did. Yeah. Um, we're going to steer in our show notes, everybody to your Instagram and your website, and your website which has incredible articles that yeah, I've caught you. up on. People will love that and other podcasts that you've been on. Yeah. So it's yeah. Great. Thanks for letting Thanks. us be a part of your, um, your journey, journey and sharing your story. Yeah, of course. I'm glad I could help. And I loved meeting you both. You too, Thank you so much, everyone. Please go on Instagram and follow us on, um, the weekend sober podcast and send us an email or send us a DM. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.